my name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we are talking about Peter Watkins, the preeminent mockumentarian. Right, Will? <laughs> That's right. The Christopher Guest of his day. You know, Roger Ebert wrote a review of Peter Watkins' film Privilege in 1967, where he predicted that Watkins would eventually join the ranks of Bergman and Fellini. And I think it's safe to say that that didn't happen, which is not to say that he's not as great in his own way, but he's not as famous as Bergman and Fellini, and he's, he's not doing the same sort of thing as them, because he spent his life genuinely challenging the constraints of the business of film and television. Isn't it wild to watch his movies and see films that are politically motivated, politically aggressive, but also in a format that the regular viewer can understand and make an impact. I mean, when we talk about political filmmaking, a lot of the times, uh, let's say Jean-Luc Godard would make very obtuse films about the subjects, while Peter Watkins are so in your face that one of the reasons that he did not have as big a career as those other, you know, heralded filmmakers is that when his pictures would come out, they were so effective that oftentimes the people in charge were like, put them away. We don't want to see these. These could actually do damage if a mass audience saw them. Also, the decisions that he made in his filmmaking went against the whole, all of his decisions went against the, uh, you know, media industrial complex. They went against how a film is supposed to be made. I mean, he made a 14 and a half hour documentary about nuclear proliferation. He made a 375 minute movie called La Commune, which is about the working class radicals who ruled France for four months after Napoleon III was defeated. And that one was made in a sort of documentary style with this huge ensemble of non-professional actors. These are artistic decisions that are like defensible on their own terms, but they're provocations. And they make us ask like, why can't a movie be like this? Who decides what a movie is like and why? But we should be clear to people who are unfamiliar with his work that Peter Watkins' gimmick is that he essentially shoots documentaries by reenacting historical situations where documentaries could not exist. So what's really fascinating about watching his films today is that we are queued up to this style more than they were back in the day in the 60s because we have experienced it through the proliferation of television adopting this style. And now you see it again with all the same tropes, but you're seeing stuff like the life of Edward Monk for four hours. But he's doing all the Jim in the office shit, like looking right at the camera and smirking as things are happening around him. Yeah, and you know, people might want to think of Peter Watkins films as like precursors to the uh, reenactment segments on America's Most Wanted or uh, America's <laughs> Dumbest Criminals. <laughs> exactly the same. Peter Watkins, as an artist... He did start on the stage doing stage productions. I'd be very curious to know like what those were and like what his aesthetic was of like trying to create that realism. I guess it was probably like Brechtian because that's the big signifier you can apply to his work, which is he is underlining the artificiality in these you know, documents because you know that they could not exist. He spent his life and career highly suspicious of the documentary form, uh, pretty much any popular form of media. He's suspicious of the passive way that we as viewers are expected to consume it. He's tried to create 
a sort of uh, participatory cinema and a participatory like mode of filmmaking. He has tried to, you know, if not share authorship, then at least bring all of his collaborators, all of his actors into the collaborative process. I mean, it won't surprise people to know that, you know, he is a left winger. Wait, what? Based on the movies that we watched <laughs> for this episode, he's a left winger? And he regards the traditional forms of documentary and narrative filmmaking as basically the master's tools. The documentary is known worldwide as this is real. Like, if you're seeing this using these forms and techniques... They are real. And what he did, I think, angered a lot of people because even if it was subconsciously, they were not ready to look at this stuff and be confronted in this aggressive way using the techniques that you see every day. I mean, Peter Watkins, one of his main stylistic tics is him narrating these things in a very dry, informational way. And that's what you associate with BBC documentaries. And when you're seeing the very aggressive images that he's showing you, there's a kind of pulling back away from it. Like, well, I can't believe that I'm seeing this in the way that it's playing out. Even if you are consciously aware that this is fiction in the way that it was created, that there's actors that are playing these roles. So a little bit about Peter Watkins' life. He was born in 1935 in England. He grew up during the Second World War. You know, he had to move houses because of the war. He did a stint in the National Service. So, you know, those early experiences instilled in him a lifelong hatred of war and conflict. You can see that in one of his earliest short films, The Diary of an Unknown Soldier, which is a 19-minute film. Uh, he, he made it with the theater company that he worked with as a young man, and it's told from the perspective of this soldier who's gone out, I guess, into the Second World War to fight the Germans. And it, it, it's a horror film, basically, from his perspective of just, like, killing people and fighting over, uh, you know, 100 feet of muddy land. And we have a drumbeat that we're constantly told that, like, conflict is inevitable. Uh, man is naturally violent. You know, even George Orwell would write that like, well, you know, people are tribal. People uh, love conflict. They love thinking about wars and that sort of thing. But this this movie forces us to think, well, maybe actually people don't like killing people in the mud. Maybe that's unnatural. Uh, the next short film that he made, The Forgotten Faces, was one that caught the attention of the BBC because it like recreated the Hungarian Revolution with actors in the UK. But it was so realistic, felt like a real documentary. And this is tying back to, you know, these kind of docudramas were things that always existed. One of the most famous ones being John Huston's The Battle of San Pietro, which had a lot of like recreated footage in it. But what Watkins was doing here is crafting something that this one could have existed, but not really in this form. And he pushed it to the edge in his next uh, long form thing, Culloden, which was about a battle in the Scottish Highlands in 1746. And this was the first time in all of the works that he had done up to date, which is like, this would have been impossible. Cameras did not exist. No one was there. But what if we presented it if it was in the style of the Vietnam War footage that we were seeing on television every day. Now, his first very famous work is 1966's The War Game, which, I mean, the story behind this one is the story of Peter Watkins' career. He was commissioned by the BBC to make a documentary about what would happen if London was attacked with an atomic bomb. And Watkins did extensive historical research into the aftermath of the two atomic bomb blasts in Japan, as well as 
bombings in Dresden and other cities during the Second World War. And he presented his findings in the form of a faux documentary, which depicted in unsparing, brutal detail what a nuclear attack on London and its aftermath would actually look like. It should be underlined that Watkins' films work as well as they do because he is so in control of the power that a documentary can have. Like, you want to apply like, oh, this is like direct cinema, right? No, oh, he is using every tool in the documentary maker's tool belt. The satirical use of juxtaposition between like the people in the UK not having any idea what to do if a nuclear attack happens to the actual horrible footage of nuclear desolation and then cutting to a clergyman being like nuclear bombs are fine because God accepts it and God wouldn't make a big mistake like that. Right. And those quotes being actual direct quotations of stuff that people had said about nuclear war. Well, everything in the movie movie is factual, but all that we're seeing is staged or reenacted. So it blurs the distinction between what we would think of as a dramatic film and a documentary film. I mean, the things that we see, the evacuation of London and the implications of that, like we see that you know, this this happened in other cities. Police would be knocking on people's doors and saying, listen, you need to make room for eight or ten people from London in your house. And, you know, it's compulsory. And like someone's like, I hope none of them are black, right? And it's like, oh, boy. I mean, yeah, that would happen. And then when the bombs drop, you know, people's skin is getting burned off. Uh, there are firestorms that erupt, people dying of carbon monoxide poisoning. Then we see the breakdown of society, people living in filth, people getting shot in the streets, orphaned children, etc. And as you mentioned, he keeps cutting back and forth between all that horrible footage, which is very realistically presented. Like, if you saw it, you'd be like, oh, this is like documentary footage of something, right? Like, there is not like a false note in any of it, which is wild, considering that he's doing it on like a BBC teleplay budget. Right. It looks like, you know, the photos you see from Nagasaki. It cuts between that and these ironic juxtapositions of the clergyman saying like, oh, well, uh, we've got sensible people creating sensible policy. And, you know, it's a real jacuz against the people in our society that should be standing up against this sort of thing, being totally compliant. And Watkins has said in interviews that he was very aware of the visual juxtaposition, not just the ironic one. The fact that you're cutting from this man on the street capturing this thing happening, flames going, people's face mutilated, and then to someone dryly answering a question that will do millions, but doesn't really involve them in a static one shot staring right into the camera. I should note as well is that one of Watkins most important stylistic techniques. And I actually saw this in a documentary about La Commune that was released by the NFB. He always wants his actors to look into the camera because if they look into the camera, then they're connecting with the audience in a way that fictional films do not. This is a gambit that he can use and works amazingly well in all of the stuff that he does because it's almost accusing the audience of why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you involving yourself in this? This could happen or has happened. And I'm looking right at you to say that like, we are one and the same. Now, this movie, again, was commissioned, the war game, that is, was commissioned by the BBC. The director general of the BBC, Hugh Carlton Green, said the film was too horrific for the medium of broadcast. Now, it could be that the BBC and other people in power looked at it and said, this is too dangerous. Watkins writes on his website that in the 2010s, I think, 
a deep dive went into like, why didn't this get screened? And basically what happened was the BBC showed it to governmental bodies and the governmental bodies told them, you cannot show this movie because it could literally damage our position as the government if this was screened on the BBC. And as a result, the BBC took a one page ad in a newspaper saying, we are not screening this because it does not like fit our artistic standards. It's a artistic failure, which is just ridiculous when you actually, like if you watch it, that's absolutely wrong. That's amazing to hear because I thought that might be the case, but then I also thought it might simply be the case that the guy was being honest like he he looked at the document he looked at this film and said this is too scary for tv might have just been as simple as that no and what ended up happening from this is that it did get screened around the world and it won an academy award for best documentary which is incredible i mean it's it's hard to imagine that happening now you know given that this is such a, a hybrid form between like a documentary and a and a feature film but it did win the Oscar. And it made possible, I suppose, in 1967, Watkins making his one and only studio comedy, uh, Privilege. I love the idea <laughs> of a studio going, you know what? This guy who made this really horrifying documentary about the bombs dropping, we need him for our satire of pop stars. So I watched Privilege and I mean, it's a movie that has its fans. I found it more interesting than enjoyable. Like the thesis of the movie is basically that culture is one of the apparatuses with which, you know, the ruling elite keeps us in line. And so the main character is this pop star who like, you know, makes a big show of being anti-establishment and everything. But that's basically like a release valve that that they've given us. And then he's completely a puppet of the ruling class. And then the ruling class then says, OK, they've had their fun. Now we're going to make this guy conservative and we're going to make him come back to the church. And his teeny bopper fans are now going to follow him back and be become part of bourgeois society. I mean, that's a funny idea, but I, I have to be honest, I didn't watch this one. Most of the criticism that I read basically boiled down to what you're saying of, it's a fun idea. Like some parts of it were. I mean, it's not funny is is the big problem. Yeah, that's the main problem. It's worth watching. It's interesting. Peter Watkins had like a whole bunch of projects that he was trying to get off the ground. Uh, I heard on a commentary by like a Watkins expert. He said that at one point he was working on a film about the American Indians that was going to star Marlon Brando. Interesting. It would have been a story about Custer and Sitting Bull. I mean, I would have loved to see that, but <laughs> after one Hollywood picture, he is chased out on a rail right away. Probably his most famous movie, the one that's most watched today, is 1971's Punishment Park. And the jumping off point for this movie was an actual piece of legislation that was on the books. I think it was repealed maybe the year before this came out called the McCarran Internal Security Act of 1950, which in the United States authorized federal authorities to arrest and detain people suspected of fomenting an insurrection. You know, in other words, the feds could use this and without due process arrest people that it considered subversive. I don't know to what extent it was actually ever used. And again, it was repealed, but like, you know, we've lived most of our lives with Guantanamo Bay. So there's always something you can compare this movie to. And so Punishment Park is a running man scenario, if you will, where all of these protesters or people who have committed things like thought crimes are brought towards a tribunal of 
I mean, senators, union leaders, someone who represents the mothers at home and are then sentenced and given a choice. Do you go and fill out your jail sentence, which is often about 20 years, or do you go through Punishment Park, which is running through the desert, chased by police officers who are using this as a training opportunity. And if the people reach a American flag within those three days they will have served their sentence. Now, the young prisoners, you know, they're all anti-war. Some of them are feminists. There's a black power guy. There are communists. Huh, is this a reminiscent of the Chicago 7 <laughs> by any chance? And the tribunal of older authority figures are all basically like, you know, it's the generation gap. They're older Archie Bunker types. And it's done in a very convincing, again, fake documentary style he hired non-professional actors again, and a lot of the scenes, a lot of the tribunal scenes were improvised between the people. And at a certain point, you're watching real debates between these people, real arguments. And that's wild because you get to witness the debate between someone who has, you know, good politics and someone who's just wrong. And what you see is the people who are wrong. They just don't want to admit it. They just scream at them, tell them to shut up, tell them to get out of the room. There's no arguing with these people because they think they're right and that's it. There's no way around it. And it's important to remember, you know, the context of this movie, the year before the Kent State Massacre had happened. That's the famous incident where the National Guard opened fire on anti-war protesters at Kent State University. Four people were killed. You know, this movie, which watch today could come across a little heavy handed. Is it though? <laughs> I mean, you just need to look at the reactions to when this movie was released in the States are so like, wait, what? People were just yelling at Peter Watkins. How can you do this? You have a paranoid mind. This is like morally repugnant. And that's like the reaction that most people had to the feature films that were put out there. I mean, Punishment Park is like really in your face. It does do a good job, I think, of showing multiple perspectives of all these people. You know, you have the guy that's like, I just have to go through it. I just got to reach the end. As long as I follow the rules and I don't like speak up, they can't hurt me. Of course, you can't win this game. That's the whole point of the game. If the people that are punishing you are the ones that are making the rules is that it's impossible to win. You also have the people that fight back. You also have a great moment where the documentarians break the fourth wall to involve themselves in what's happening. So I think what Punishment Park does so well is that it is an angry movie. And I think it's angry in a way that kind of still, if you watch it now, makes an impact on its audience. Like this is the kind of film that I mean, in a perfect world, would be shown in high schools. Like, when you got to watch a movie, you watch Punishment Park. And Peter Watkins said that, like, after they would screen the film, the first question that they always got was, uh, are Punishment Parks real? Like, people, like, genuinely did not know if this was a documentary or not. Yeah, I mean, it, it really speaks to, I mean, among other things, it speaks to just his incredible skill. You watch his fake documentaries, and they really do look like real documentaries. They're immaculate. Versus a lot of the ones that he did, which were, like, in... His historical before camera periods punishment park could have been made by the like a bbc or european uh, documentary crew coming to america there's nothing indicating that it's not moving on he was then uh completely banished from north america and the uk so he went to europe to make his next few films edvard monk from 1974 Ooh, thanks for taking that bullet of saying his name uh, before i said munch while talking about this i uh, know i know i i always pronounced it munch too i thought it was like robert munch you know but no it's 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 actually edvard monk well i blame him throw that N 
10K at the end. Like, what are you doing with the CH? From 1974, this is a biopic of the famous painter. It was released in two versions, a four-hour TV version and a three-hour and change movie version. It's one of his several attempts to depict historical events in the style of documentary. Imagine a camera crew had been following around Edward Monk. But I think that something that I really found made an impact in this film was that not only is a camera crew following Edward Monk, but that camera crew and the editor are aware of the span of history. So they can compare moments in his life to the paintings that he did or what would happen later on in his life, creating an emotional response right then and there instead of laying seeds and building them up as they go along. As well as the amazing editing technique of continually showing moments throughout his life, specifically his sister dying of consumption, as things that in a normal biopic would just kind of play out. But it's like, oh no, I am going to underline strike through bold all of this stuff and how the past is defining the present that he's going through right now. As with the war game, it's built from a huge amount of historical research. He studied Monk's diaries, became an expert in the artistic evolution. There are uh, some very excellent scenes where we see Monk painting and Watkins guides us through the artistic decisions being made. We we really, I think, leave the film understanding like how he made these paintings and how he became the artist that he was. Uh, he became the artist that he was because of one bad relationship that haunted him for the rest of his life, according to Watkins. Well, he had a hard life. Uh, he grew up poor. He had a tough father. As you mentioned, his sister and his mother died from consumptions. He himself had consumption but survived it, and he's plagued by memories of that. And yes, there was the affair with a married woman who scorned him that he had uh, when he was a young man and uh, apparently never recovered from this. But his life is also put in conversation with the times, specifically the last two decades of the 19th century. So, I mean... In his young adulthood, he was in the orbit of communist intellectuals, avant-garde writers and artists in Paris and Berlin. All these dirtbag artists running around at the Black Pig saying, like, women, they're vampires, aren't they? I mean, my favorite character is August Strindberg, who in this movie has the theory that you shouldn't have a mistress because if you have sex with a woman after she's had sex with another man, your sperm might come into contact with that other man's sperm. And there is nothing more disgusting than that. <laughs> I, <know>. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this movie is uh, like the totemic example of how do you make an artist's life feel immediate to the viewer watching it? How do you make it feel real and get all the emotions that go into paintings like directly to the audience who may not understand the entire context of their life and what led to their work. And Watkins just does it amazingly using all, again, the tools of the documentary trade. Like the sadness that you get from Monk just sitting there in the tavern and then he kind of like glances toward the camera, stares right dead in the lens and you can read that misery in his face. Well, the guy who plays Monk, whose name I don't have in front of me, I'm afraid, uh, he's another non-professional actor and Watkins doesn't get him to do you know, any actorly stuff. Like, he hires him for Brissonian reasons. Like, he's got an amazing face, he has an amazing posture, but Watkins does basically nonstop narration through the movie to tell you, doesn't show you, well, sometimes he shows you, but he often tells you exactly what the context is. And it's a daring approach, it's a bold approach. It doesn't. It's not a movie that has that, like, Oscar-y, emotional biopic stuff. I think that the kind of 
overload of information like Watkins is telling you and in this year the machine gun was invented allows that to kind of not just create context but create an almost numbing effect that then goes into being emotional that you're going through this with Monk as all of these things are kind of whirling around him but then he almost dies because a friend pushes him into a frozen puddle. Well it's powerful when you are constantly being reminded of you're constantly being shown that footage of him 13 years old with consumption and that's juxtaposed with him now with that stone face you continually see his sister just coughing up blood it's like an image that Watkins goes back to again and again and again there are many historical details like we find out that in Norway like sex work was a huge industry it was basically semi-legal but the sex workers were heavily scrutinized heavily regulated there's that one scene where one sex worker has to submit to weekly gynecological investigations and I think this is a gambit that Watkins does very smartly because in the wrong hands, this could be a movie that its main thesis is like, ladies, huh? Boy, they lead people astray. But by creating a whole image around Monk and giving all these women a place to speak, a place to talk directly into the camera as if they're being interviewed, it allows it to move beyond that. So there's still power in the kind of patheticness of Monk screaming at the person that he's having an affair with, like, I'm going to be better. I will be eating the best meals just to show you that I'm great. And like, oh boy, every man who was in their teens has gone through some like lame reaction like this when they've been dumped or had a bad relationship. And somehow Watkins makes it work within the context of the story that he's telling. Well, I mean, in terms of the movie's depiction of women, it's a very buttoned up society, a very bourgeois, polite society, but it's also a sick society. It's a society that like is bursting at the seams to such an extent that basically like it has this semi-legal sex work industry, but then, you know, at, at the same time, it's a very moralistic society. How dare they show these paintings of naked women? I can't bring my family here. And supposedly Watkins did get people who did not like Monk's paintings to come and be interviewed on camera. So that thin line between reality and fiction is woo, completely gone. You know, with the narration where, where Watkins is telling you, oh, you know, and then this year Adolf Hitler was born. And then in this year, this happened. And this year that happened. You're constantly being reminded that society, huge changes are happening to society. Huge shifts are happening to society. You're seeing all of these artists and avant-garde poets and, uh, you know, scientists and this and that. Huge innovations are being made. And Edward Monk, he's innovative himself. He's bringing a whole new emotional complexity to art. And everyone hates his art. Like, it's incredibly innovative. It captures the spirit of the times, but it's that's dangerous and that's threatening. And what is the point of an art critic? I mean, even us talking right now, like hearing them in Monk <laughs> say stuff like, ah, it's morally repugnant. Why even do this kind of stuff? It's gross. And Watkins has said that this movie is his most personal of any of the ones that he did. And you can feel these kind of negative reactions being mirrors to the negative reactions that he had to all the feature films that he had made previously in his career as well. Watkins seems to be implying here that art critics are enforcers of the status quo. He's not implying. We know that's true. But I mean, that's what happened. He's, say, he's saying that they are the ones who help, you know, enforce what the boundaries are, what the boundaries of the medium are. So whether you're Edward Monk and you're making the background fuzzy and unfinished or seemingly unfinished in a way to convey emotion and move, moving away from representation, or you're Peter Watkins and you're blurring the distinction between documentary and fiction and you're making 14 and a half hour movies and you're making a politically revolutionary 
scary movies that the BBC wants to ban. How dare Edward Monk make the sky red? Oh, oh boy, I'm having a faint just thinking about it. <laughs> After this period making films in Europe, Watkins has said that like he kind of pulled away from his usual techniques of making pictures. I haven't seen The Voyage, which he made in 1987, which is his global look at the impact of military use of technology and people's perception of it. But in his website, which is filled with great essays by Watkins himself, he talks about how he wanted to get away from the monomyth of the way that you tell stories. And his film, The Journey, which is 14 hours long. I mean, it's a TV miniseries at that point, was one of the ways to do it. And yeah, from this point on, he made movies infrequently. I mean, his vision was such that it you know, doesn't fit into the normal ways of making and distributing films. In 1994, there was The Free Thinker, which is a 276-minute documentary film about August Strindberg. Then his last film to date is La Commune, which we mentioned earlier, the film about the working class uprising in France. That movie was 375 minutes and created in this radical participatory style. Uh, Justin, you alluded to a documentary that the National Film Board of Canada did called The Universal Clock, The Resistance of Peter Watkins. And if people look that up on YouTube, they can find out more about the making of La Commune. I think it's really great because a documentarian is questioning things like, is Peter Watkins just difficult? Is that why his films don't get made? Or is it because his films are so offensive to the kind of normal reality of the people that have to distribute it who are in control that they'd rather not touch them and have as little an audience as possible see them and guess what happened to la commune well the tv channel that commissioned it who was all behind it decided and eh, we don't really want to show it it is an artistic failure is what they said and they ended up screening it at like 11 a.m or something like that and peter Watkins is like please no show it a little bit earlier than that break it over two nights and they were like nope we're just gonna dump it and that's what ended up happening with the last film that watkins has ever released the same thing that basically happened to the war games that the people that made it just didn't want anything to do with it i wish there were more peter watkins movies but i think you'll agree that the ones that there are uh, are very long and so if you uh, chop them up by the normal length of movie you get a full filmography i do think that there is another life for films like the war games or even punishment park i was talking to emily about it and she was like "Ooh, that sounds interesting and i think it's again what i said at the beginning of this podcast that people are so regulated to the style that he utilized in these films that seeing them done in these radical ways is powerful especially because they were made when he made them so maybe the war games is going to get popular on tiktok and go viral any day now and people will be like did you know they dropped bombs on the uk in the 60s well, i didn't know this they must be hiding it well and also when watkins was making these movies you had tv and you had movie theaters and then i guess eventually you had video and now there are so many different ways to watch and distribute movies that i mean if nothing else all of these movies are much more accessible than they've ever been so as per usual you can send us emails at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and our first letter is from jordan he goes i love your show i love hong kong cinema when will you do an episode on Jung be you thanks jordan i mean we've talked about Jung in the past before but give people a little bit more details about him in case they're not aware Will in hong kong cinema we of course know jackie chan we know sammo hung but do we know the third brother 
the three of them, Yun Biao and uh, Yun, sorry, how do you pronounce his name? I'm used to reading it. I think it's it. B-U. I think I've heard uh, Badman Bay Logan say it like that on his commentary tracks. I've been saying like bio for years, but uh, I think B-U is how he said it. But again, I could be completely incorrect. Yun Biao along with Jackie and Sammo, was one of the three brothers who starred in Project A, Dragons Forever, Wheels on Meals, also made many films on his own, notably On the Run. Uh, yeah, he's great. He's a little less flashy than Sammo and Jackie. Well, he's known as like the acrobatic brother. Like, Jung uh, was the guy that Sammo or Jackie would get if they needed to like double someone because he could basically do it all. Like in the film Writing Wrongs, which is one of his major films, he even doubles for Cynthia Rothrock in some shots because, you know, he had gotten the awful training that uh, Jackie had gotten at the peak opera school so he could do all of this stuff he was also the one that Samo said like he would protect because he was always the youngest of the trio so there was always like a kind of like goofiness to his performances even as they aged up and became adults you always feel him treated kind of like the younger brother in the films i think we haven't done an episode on him or really even considered doing an episode on him because he kind of lives in the shadow of jackie and Samo a little bit it's hard to talk about him without talking about them, but maybe it's worth the effort. I mean, I was a big fan right when I got into Hong Kong cinema, probably because I wanted to hear about the one that no one talked about, but he's still all over the place. Like he starred in The Prodigal Son. Again, that's a Sammo film. He's in Project A. He's Jackie Chan's sidekick in that one. And he had a pretty big career himself, but not really creatively. He made one film that he directed, Kid from Tibet. And I remember it just being okay and that film has a very quick jackie chan cameo in it or is it yeah i think this kind of gets at it too sammo directed a lot of movies jackie directed a lot of movies the two of them you can kind of identify their visions it's hard to identify yun biao's vision although again writing wrongs it rocks it's great classic movie yeah so good and yun biao is someone who's also kind of like stepped even more into the background while Jackie and Samuel have kind of still been doing their thing as they've been going along. But other than the fact that he appeared in Robin B. Hood, the Jackie Chan film, and did no fighting, I think, in it, that's all I can really remember that Yung Biu's been doing. He's appeared in some DTV films. He was in Tai Chi Zero as well but no big roles for him that I can think of right off the top of my head. Wasn't he in a movie in the last couple of years, him and Sammo reunited, they they did a fight together. Was it one of the Ip Man movies or like a, a, an Ip Man ripoff film, like Young Ip Man or something like that? The Legend is Born, Ip Man, directed by Herman Yao. Yes, I was correct. This one has Sammo Hung and wow. Yun Biao in it, and they do have a fight scene. I'm right, and I'm happy that my... Uh, faltering brain was able to lead me to this place. <laughs> it's like one last synapse firing before the darkness takes you. You're like, oh yeah, Sammo did fight uh, Yung Biu in that movie. I bet like Yung Biu is like all over television. That's where all those old martial artists go to live, you know, out their golden years or silver years, twilight years. There we go. Is uh, acting in TVB dramas. So as per usual, you can send us letters at pointsnoteclubpodcast at gmail.com. So this week on a Patreon, what are we talking about, Will? Well, we're talking about some other film artists who blurred the distinction between documentary and fiction. We are returning to probably our very favorite people, The Three Stooges, to talk about their 1962 film, The Three Stooges Meet Hercules, and talk about it in 
grueling detail. I love that on Letterboxd recently, you're like, well, you know what? I got to challenge myself, watch some, you know, films that are going to stimulate the old brain pan. And like a rubber band, you stretch yourself as far as you could go before you snap back into like, all right, time for Three Stooges and Hercules. <laughs> I got to watch something that's to my basis instinct. There's nothing wrong with seeing the Three Stooges and Hercules because you know what? In certain other ways, that movie did stretch me. Uh, it stretched me to my breaking point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen to the episode to hear Will go, I don't like watching these movies, but I love talking about them. (laughs) That's what we discuss on our Patreon at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. Next week, we're not quite sure what the topic yet is, but it will be something in the experimental film range because after Shocktober, oh! We got to get a little bit more serious. We got to think think about it. It's uh, think Vember, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, so that's what we're going to be doing next week. Until then, my name's John Zaglou. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Will, you're in Europe, and that means that you're at the epicenter of art in the world for English-speaking language audiences, and that means you're going to hit up the Cinematex and watch things you could easily see in Toronto. <laughs> Any day of the month. That's right. You know, just when I've had some free hours, I've been uh, watching, yeah, you know, DCP presentations of old movies that I already own on Blu-ray. And uh, <laughs> I've, been, I've been having a great time doing it. But you've been doing it in, I assume, cavernous Amsterdam cinemas, right? Well, I've uh, been patronizing a, a cinema in Amsterdam called The Lab 3, I think it's called. And, uh, you know, it's a repertory cinema. Uh, yeah, I saw Breathless there. You, you, heard, you heard about Breathless? It's, it's... <laughs> I mean, I got to check it out. I've uh, never seen it, of course, but I hear it's uh, very revolutionary. I mean, the thing is, it is great to watch some of these movies in the theater, even in, you know, DCP presentations of movies that I already own on Blu-ray, because it just makes you sit with them. It makes you fucking sit with Breathless and reconsider it. Watch it with tunnel vision. I had a great time. Okay, so I watched a movie this week that I'd never seen before. John Huston's The Asphalt Jungle. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. A long time ago. Marilyn Monroe, uh, heist film. Sterling Hayden. Love the um, <laughs> the man who named names and felt guilty about it for the rest of his life. Good old Sterling Hayden. Oh, I, I didn't know that. But uh, what can I say? I like him as an actor. And this movie, yeah, The Asphalt Jungle, if you haven't seen it, folks, it rocks. And you mentioned Marilyn Monroe. So I didn't know she was in it. She plays like the mistress of the old guy. And she's in it for, I don't know, five minutes, uh, 10 minutes. And it's early in her career. It's 1950. And this this mistress character shows up. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, who is this woman? Why? Like, she she looks kind of like Marilyn Monroe, but who who is she? And then in the end credits, like, oh, it's Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it doesn't look at all like the woman that was in the recent biopic about Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> my perception is completely changed. Between you and me, if I can be honest, I, I saw her in this movie. And I thought, wow. This is a really attractive person. <laughs> yeah, your eyes bugged out like a Tex Avery wolf, right? And I thought, like, how did this person never become a star? Yeah. And then, of course. <laughs> <laughs> You're rediscovering these movies all anew. What is this theatrical experience like in all of these faraway theaters that you're watching them in? Oh, I mean, it's just like anywhere else. I mean, I, I like okay. I like the Lab 3 cinema, though, because it's got a nice cafe next to it. The theater itself is like kind of Stanley Kubrick themed. They've got his posters all over the walls. <laughs> (laughs) Yeah. I know. You're, it's boring, right? You want some deeper cuts than that. <laughs> I mean, we got some deeper cuts because you took a little bit of a trip to find some German-loved culture at a certain museum, didn't you, Will? In the middle of Berlin, okay, there is a Bud Spencer Museum. Now, if you don't know who Bud Spencer is, I mean, they love him in Europe. There was the comedy duo Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill who made spaghetti westerns, action comedies, 
and they were fucking huge. Okay, and they didn't really travel overseas. Like they're not that well known in America. I mean, we all sat, laughed, and watched Super Fuzz, though the classic Terrence Hill film. Wait, so is this a Bud Spencer museum or a Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer museum? Well, it's officially a Bud Spencer museum, but there's Terrence Hill shit. Like, wow, you, like you couldn't have the Bud Abbott museum and not have some Costello <laughs> yeah. stuff in there, right? Uh, yeah, I know. It's just I'm very curious as to why they went with Bud instead of Terrence, who seemingly is the bigger star. Uh, probably his family set this up i don't know you mentioned super fuzz like 10 years ago maybe 15 years ago i'm sure we were at the same screening at U of T. yes yeah okay <laughs> at cult night at the cinema studies student union's cult night they show a print of super fuzz and i remember peter kaplowski before the movie said okay we don't know anything about this movie but the trailer is pretty crazy so let's watch it and just a great screening i mean super fuzz which i know that a generation older than us grew up watching this movie on hbo it's a classic Italian movie pretending to be an American movie. And it's about a cop who gets superpowers and it's very wacky. At the time, I thought, I've never heard of this. This is totally obscure. Oh, this little curio that has probably never been shown since the time of its release cut to you a couple weeks ago in the Bud Spencer Museum looking at a statue of Terrence Hill and Super Fuzz. In the entrance, okay? In the area <laughs> where you get your tickets, there is a seven-foot-tall statue of Terrence Hill and Super Fuzz with the bullet in his teeth. Like, people love that moment, right? Like, that's why we put it right at the front. The legendary moment from Super Fuzz where he, he, he gets the bullet in his teeth. And this museum is right in the middle of the tourist district of Berlin. I thought you would have had to go like to the outskirts or something like that. No, they fucking love Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill in Europe. I mean, it's not a it's not a it's not a myth. They love these guys. What do you think it is about them though? I wonder like was there a special screening or a TV channel like they went into like heavy rotation, which is what created that attachment? I mean, that's usually the root to most of these people being very popular. Yeah, it must be. I mean, I know they were huge in movie theaters, but they must have also been big on TV. And look, we have to do an episode on these guys. I know, we've talked about it before. But now that we know, we will be capturing the German market. It has to be put on the schedule very soon. <laughs>